think we're live uh welcome back it is friday june 12th i'm dan bloom your co-host here on the morning brushback thanks for being here bobby stevens um my avid supporter is here from chicago how are you sir i'm great uh big shout out to dan blewett debate extraordinaire yesterday that's why i said supporter and not uh, nemesis this morning also we have an awesome guest charles bolden is here charles how are you good good thanks for having me dan and bobby i appreciate it yeah, I appreciate you being here. So Charles is uh, the new head baseball coach at the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. Um, and they're actually reviving – are they reviving their program or, or they're starting it for the first time? Didn't they have one yeah. and they stopped? Or they? Yeah, they, they did. They had it uh, in the 90s. They stopped it in 1995. So, man, that's got to be a big – fill us in real quick. Well, that's a big undertaking because we have a lot of topics to, t- to talk about today. But what, what do you do when you, like, start a baseball program from nothing at a college? Um, well, I, I kind of similar, you know, I kind of made it similar to what I had to do for my travel organization. Um, I, I started that from nothing. Um, and I had no support. I had no financial backing. I had no sponsors. I had no facility. I had nothing. Uh, so basically I had to figure out a way to market to players and to parents and, and kind of sell my vision. And it was no different than what I did with, you know, starting this program, except for I had millions of resources, obviously way more money, an athletic mm-hmm. department and, you know, an athletic director who was supportive and a school. And, you know, that's important. Also, you know, we talk about not the, only, you know, the athletics, but the school is super supportive, you know, from the chancellor and, you know, things like yeah. that. So it, yeah, you start you from someone there, to make you know, all the, all the boring paperwork for you. Yeah, and then exactly. There's so much so paperwork, I, even for baseball. Like your travel team, you have to all the parent slips and all that stupid stuff. That takes a lot of time to make all that man, stuff. So brutal. Man, it's, and it's just like, it, yeah, it's like homework, you know, in school when, you know, your professors or teachers are just giving you busy work. It's, it's the mm-hmm. same thing. That's the, that's the part that's not fun, but the fun part is, is definitely coaching. And now I've got my staff figured out and I can give them a lot of responsibilities and, you know, give them that autonomy so they can do things too. So I don't, I don't try to do it all on my own and I, I rely on them a lot, you know, and give them responsibility. So it works. That's good. How long did it take you to, to figure out your staff? <laughs> Ooh, um, I would say everything was fully figured out with everybody. This is June now. I would say March, end of March. Who is on your staff now? Uh, so I've got uh, my pitching coach is Steph Kataska. He's from Illinois. He's worked with elite um, he also, uh, pitched at St. Mary's in Minnesota. Um, I've got CJ Kohler. Uh, he actually coached at Finlandia. Uh, he's coming over and I got AJ Voyage and he coached at Carroll and he was the pitching coach. He's coming over to work with the catchers. Uh, CJ's working with the infielders. Steph's working with the pitchers. I'm doing the hitters and the outfielders. So we have coaches at every position. Um, and that's something that's important that these guys are getting that individual development. It's got more, you're more in a division one program at this point. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's what I was, I was, uh, throwing around in my head, obviously in, in division one, you have what three, you know, head coach and two paid assistants, and then they just exploit everyone else. <laughs> um, what, what's, what's your program? What is it? What does the, the D three staff look like financially? I mean, how many of these guys can you pay? Like, what is it like? 
well, I'm paying all three of them, but the amount of money is not great. Uh, you know, they, they love it. They're doing it for the greater good of baseball. And uh, they're bought into what, you know, the bigger purposes of what we're trying to do. Um, you know, what is that? Thing. I mean, build a program for years to come. That's a dynasty. Be one of the best programs, not only for Division Three, but in the country. Uh, the way we run our, you know, program, I wanted to run like a Division One program. We have a strength and performing coach. We have a team manager. We have an equipment manager. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. We have a state-of-the-art uh, lifting uh, facility. If you guys saw that, it goes up. We have our own custom weights, you know. It's got over nice. 30 benches and squat rats. So we're, we're ahead of the game in a lot of areas. Our athletic director is the man. Um, so we're, these, these student athletes have a great opportunity with us. They have access to anything that they need. That does sound big time. I mean, a lot of, and not to, certainly not to disparage, but like D3 te- programs don't tend to have as big of uh, athletic facilities, right? And uh, to have like a really well-equipped weight room, I mean, that can just like blow a kid away when they walk in for their, for their visit, for sure. Yeah, you want to feel favorite. big time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and I, and I feel that way too with the guys. The way I recruit them, um, I think a lot of times too, like with I want individual success. I'm a player's coach, um, but I, I expect a lot of them out, you know, as well when I when I have them under my wing. But if, you, if players do good, they need that special attention. If one of my pitchers are pitchers of the week, everybody should know about that, and I'm going to put it out there and tell everybody, you know, fifty thousand times over. So I think a lot of times, you know coaches try to put this facade on like oh it's not about the individual it's the, you know it's about the team yes it's about the team but it's also supporting your guys who work hard and, and giving them that you know that attention that they need and that notoriety that's important to have your hard work pay off for you yeah for sure for sure yeah and you got you guys have an athletic department i'm reading here it says it reinstated baseball women's lacrosse and men's mm-hmm. soccer in an in a age where you know programs are getting cut so Chicago State program we're both friendly with, familiar with. Charles was, what were you, 2018? Were you the volunteer at Chicago 20, State? 2016, I believe. 2016, the volunteer at Chicago State. And, I mean, just you being there, you know how difficult it is to recruit to a, to that school, just even with a Division One status and the facilities that they had at their disposal. You know, talk about a little bit about the difference. I mean, it's obviously a big jump, D3 to D1, but – What's the difference going on in um, facility-wise and support-wise that you're getting at Eau Claire? Well, it's it's night. I mean, it, it's night and day. Um, and again, but that athletic director actually was at Chicago State, and now he's at Eau Claire. And you know, I did not know that previously, really, until I started looking into the job. Um, right. And find that out. He and I, his name's Dan Schumacher. He and I actually just missed each other. So when I came in, he was on his way out. Um, but he changed the whole program there. He got them affiliated with the, you know, WAC and different things like that. Got the field renovated. Um, so I have that guy who understands the importance of athletics and how much it means to the institution. Um, and actually, to go back on your point, that was a great point. With Division Three and Division One. the problem is we're not giving back to the student athletes. We're doing it financially from an academic standpoint. But as far as scholarships, we don't have that responsibility. So with Division right. Three, we're adding. If I mean, think about it. If tuitions, let's just say tuitions, fifteen grand, and I bring in thirty-five guys, you can do the math on how much we're contributing to the school. So we're actually an asset more than we are a detriment uh, to the school's income. And in times like this, you know, you don't know what students you're going to get back. Some people can't afford college anymore. So we're we're adding to it. You know, we're putting the, the school in the green. Um, so. 
Yeah, it, it was definitely something that it's huge, you know, just having the, the confidence to know your athletic department and the school has your back. If I need any equipment, they've been quick to, you know, they haven't restricted me in anything that I've needed so far. They've helped me, you know, a thousand times over. So I'm just I'm grateful for that. Um, just the access to the, you know, facilities, everything at the school is getting renovated. Um, every sports team has basically their, a new, you know, renovated facility from wrestling, um, you know, to volleyball, uh, softball. You can go down hockey. You can go down the line. Basketball, you know, men's and women's are getting a new, you know, uh, arena put in that's a, a, associated with the Mayo Clinic and the YMCA. So, um, just having the stuff like that available to you, man. And it, it'll be a turf uh, infield put in that as well. When they finish that, it'll be multi-level. Um, and that's going to help us too. You know, softball actually be able to play games in there. Um, so just the things that we're doing, we're staying ahead of the curve instead of trying to catch up. It's a huge difference. And I, I don't think it's a division thing. I think it's more of an athletic department and a school vision about what they want to do with athletics. You know, I've learned that. You could, like you mentioned, most Division three schools, you know, where they're at with how they provide, you know, opportunities for facilities and, and things like that. Uh, it's some Division one schools like I was at, Chicago State, that just don't have that, you know, access and things like that. And they don't value, um, you know, the importance of like building up the athletic program at full, you know, strength. So and the location of it. So a lot of things go into it. Yeah, it's, it's hmm. funny. It's funny you mentioned that about, especially in the Midwest, Division three, Wisconsin Division threes, Illinois Division three schools are powerhouses, just from an athletic standpoint. I mean, North Central College, very good at baseball, just won a Division three football national championship. Concordia baseball was number one in the country for twenty straight weeks. The Wisconsin schools are always powerhouse football schools. Whitewater, um, and then you go to these facilities. And you could see why. I mean, you could see why a kid in Wisconsin would want to stay in Wisconsin, play D3 football, instead of maybe coming to Illinois or going to Minnesota and playing. What's those squeaky higher... cheese curds? <laughs> I mean, that, that conf those conferences, not only are they competitive, I mean, the schools, the schools are bigger schools. I mean, the, I know some of the D3s in Wisconsin are 15, 20,000 kids. I mean, so you feel like you're on a big campus. You feel like the football game is drawing big-time football uh you know, crowds and it's, it's a thing to go do on the weekends. It's a draw. I mean, it's a, it's much more of a draw than when you go to some of these schools where you've got maybe three, 4,000 kids, but like, like North, like a Northwestern, for example, you go to Northwestern, it's a small campus. It's big 10 school, which is great, but it feels like you're just maybe a glorified high school. You're not yeah. getting that. You're not getting that big college atmosphere that, you would get maybe at an Eau Claire or Whitewater or a North Charles, Central where, where'd you play your college ball? At St. Francis in Joliet. Um, okay. I was a kid. My, my playing career is actually really interesting, which we could probably get into a little bit later. Um, Let's but, do it now. You know, that, <laughs> okay. Did you play uh, with Ryan so, Quigley? No, I, I played against him when he was at St. Xavier. He's actually – he and I actually talk um, every so often, and now he's at Joliet. You know, he was awesome uh, when he was working mm -hmm. with PBR – he and I actually started that relationship after that. Um, yeah. I only played actually one, one year of college baseball. Um, I was a kid who was just young, man, and dumb, and I thought I had all the answers figured out. Um, I didn't really do a good enough job of just um, sitting down and really just, like, giving myself an opportunity to have a chance to showcase what I could do. I just wanted to jump around, and I just wanted to get something right now. Um, so I transferred out of there, um, and Gordy actually came in that year 
And even after I left, you know, I, I mentioned him in the press conference and things like that. Uh, he's ta he talked to me on the phone probably once a week after I even transferred. Uh, so that just speaks to the guy he is and the man. And this he is, is Gordy Gillespie, Gillespie who's your coach yeah. at St. Francis, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. He was there, uh, such a you know influential person in my life. You know, he coached multiple sports just like me. I coached high school basketball. Um, I was an educator. I was a PE teacher for six years in a lot of different areas. Uh, Little Village, North Lawndale, those are predominantly black uh, and Mexican lower income. And then I've got my travel organization, which is pretty much a, a primarily white, you know, uh, organization with the kids. You're kind of spread out with the, the travel guys. Yeah, exactly. You know, and a lot of those areas are not North Lawndale and Little Village, but uh, with that um, – played at Oak Park River Forest for high school. So that was kind of something that helped shape me um, to where I am now as far as being comfortable around different people and, and seeing the world from a different point of view. Because Oak Park, you know, Bobby knows this. Um, Oak Park's, oh, yeah. you know, different. You know, it's kind of the exception. Um, and for that, you know, I'm blessed. But I had a really good career in high school. Uh, didn't hit under 400. So I thought I was the man. You know, I come into the, you know, didn't pay attention to grades and, and things like that. So, well, school's just boring. Young, school sucks. Yeah. And, you know, it's, you don't <laughs> yes. realize it. You know, in the... No, I realized it. I realized early on that school sucks. <laughs> no, no, no. We, I'm saying you don't realize We can realize all agree the, on that. No, no. You don't realize the importance of just getting it done because then you end mm -hmm. up transferring and you end up doing, you know, I went to, I went to four different schools, man. Um, and, I, and it wasn't even just for baseball because I signed uh, to play professionally for the Rockford Riverhawks um, in 2008. Uh, and basically, and that was no, you know, I didn't have a full resume, a full season. That was just me, you know, basically off pure athleticism. Uh, then I got a concussion with that in batting practice with a guy who went to Florida. Funny enough, I'm watching ESPNU and he's on the on the damn TV in the College World Series. And I'm like, you son of a, I wanted to jump through that screen. <laughs> so I did that. Wait, um, uh, hold on. How did he give you a concussion? I'm kidding. In batting practice, man. So I'm in the outfield getting reads. And if anybody know, you know, if you know baseball at all, the only time you're ever going to get pure reads as an outfielder is doing BP because that's the only time you're seeing the ball live off the bat. So I'm, right. I'm locked in. And this dude's a shortstop. It's a ball that's a tweener. And he's running back full speed after the ball. And I'm running full speed, obviously, you know, to work on stuff. And, yeah, we collided. Boom. Tore my right. orbital bone in my face. Had a concussion. You know, you know how indie ball is. Um, they're like, oh, yeah, we're, we'll take care of you. We want you. Cut. I recut, yeah. you know, a guy from, you know, the Braves or somebody, you know, got released and they picked them up and I was a lost thought. So uh, that happened. Then I went down to Texas the next year uh, to Big Ben and that was a great opportunity. Um, but for me as a person and as a player, I went away from what was successful. Um, my whole life, that's all I did was hit, 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 you know. I hit again, like I told you, didn't hit under 400 uh, in high school playing against top competition. And then even at St. Francis and limited opportunities, uh, I did well and got, you know, hits in good situations. And baseball, you know, if I, some of those balls drop, I might, you know, hit 500 in college. If I mean, with limited at bats that I had, um, I yeah. had like 10 at bats or something like that. But and I was two for 10, which is 200. But I literally hit like six piss rods. And those could have easily been hit. So um, hit. And then I started working for the White Sox, man, which was a, a gift and a curse because I became so technical with my swing instead of just doing what I had done my whole life and just kind of was a natural athlete. Um, I started thinking about, you know, put my hand like, dude, just see the ball and hit it. You know, in baseball, 
it, it, it's such a mental game and it's something where it'll wear you down if you allow it to, but you have to try to keep it simple. And that for me was something that changed my whole career in my life because it carried over to my coaching. I changed my swing. I got released. It was such a great opportunity for me there. And I just, I blew it myself. It was nobody else. Um, you know, at can, you, the time, can you elaborate on the, uh, so you were a White Sox coach or you got signed by the White Sox as a player? What, what, I'm, I'm, I just need a little clarification. No, that's a great question for clarity. Uh, I worked with the White Sox training organization. Okay, gotcha. Um, so gotcha. I did, like, I coached some of the teams. I did a lot of private lessons. I ran uh, camps, like hitting camps and clinics and pitching camps across okay, gotcha. the area. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So I came, you know, I'm, I'm listening to those guys and, you know, nothing against them. Um, but I'm, I'm listening to it too much, you know, and I'm starting to think, well, maybe I need to change this up. And that was so – such a bad idea, you know, trying to buy into what everybody tells you things should be like instead of staying true to yourself. And that's a bigger lesson even beyond baseball. Oh, yeah, um, so, yeah, sure. that, that, that sucked, man. And then after that, I was like, I'm done. <laughs> Mentally just cashed out. Um, so I went into coaching. I started coaching at St. Joe's uh, in Westchester. Um, then after that, uh, I coached a little bit with travel organizations around the area. And then I really – felt like I needed to do things for myself. I got tired of working for other people. Uh, I got tired, you know, of seeing how, you know, poorly things were being run across the board from being associated with high schools, from, you know, being associated with other travel organizations. I wanted to take things into my own hands with getting student athletes into college. So that's how I got the havoc started. I mentioned earlier how I started it from, you know, scratch. I always knew I wanted to be a, a college baseball coach since I was 16. I started coaching and working uh, with the Park District and Little Leagues when I was 16 years old, and it just kind of built, you know, this thing and the momentum, you know, behind it. Uh, Steve Jocelyn, loved that man to death. Uh, he gave me an opportunity to coach at the Division One level. Not many coaches start out coaching college baseball at the highest level. Um, mm -hmm. So I got a chance to see Mizzou. Uh, got a chance to see Notre Dame. I got a chance to see the top, you know, echelon of college baseball to start, you know. <clears throat> then after that, I got really good success there. Uh, when I was there, we had uh, increase in home runs, team batting averages, and stolen bases. Um, and then after I left, uh, it peaked back down. So it showed me at the highest level with my coaching and what I could do that my numbers, you know, spoke for themselves. I had good numbers in high school. Um, and broke some records there, but it's high school, you know, it's not the yeah. highest level. So then I went to division three, Illinois tech. Uh, I started out there, uh, you know, because it was close and convenient. I was still teaching like Bobby mentioned, I was a volunteer, uh, at Chicago state. So I couldn't, you know, they were traveling in the WAC and the WAC is basically the Western athletic, you know, conference. Um, so, uh, I had, you know, had to make sure I was supporting myself financially and take care of myself. I had rent to pay. So I went to Illinois Tech. First year, I didn't really like, I didn't really get that full control of kind of what I wanted to do. And I, I understand that, you know, from that head coach's point of view, Ed Ziefert. Um, but then the second year, he gave me full control and we took off. We set school record in home runs and stolen bases. We stole 100, almost 115 bases. We were like 15th in the country for Division III. Uh, offensively, we were in every top four category, every category in the offense. And the only other school that was up there with the offense in every four categories was Concordia. And again, Bobby mentioned earlier that Concordia was number one in the country for yeah. a long time and, and had a lot of you know, College World Series 
uh, World Series experience and things like that, you know, and they were beating all the schools in the country that were top teams. So well, let's, let's that talk showed about stolen bases a little bit. Yeah, it sounds like you really kind of like validated that what your stuff was, what you were doing, contributing as a coach was really working. Um, let's talk about stolen bases a little bit. First question, what's the minimum? So I, I think we all know that you don't have to be, and, and often the best base dealers are not the fastest guy on the team. Um, but no, you have to have a minimum right. speed. Yeah, like my teammate Phelan Lantini was probably a seven-flat runner, especially in mm-hmm. his – like I played with him and he was like 39 years old and still stealing like 40 bags a year. Wow, um, what, an annoying, what an annoying player. Like, oh, Phelan. Not as like a personality, just every t- – it's like, dude, stop dancing around. Just get your lead off, damn it. Like stop jumping. He's like, he's smart. Like a, he's like a – it's like a must-see TV when he gets on base. Like, he's that guy. <laughs> Stealing bases is an attitude, and this guy has, it like, is. that attitude. Yeah, so my question is, uh, what's – you know, obviously you have to have a lot of savvy and know what you're looking for to get great jumps. And, like, this guy, Phelan, really had that. But if you're a 7'5 runner, doesn't matter how much savvy you have, you're not going to be a good base dealer. So what right. would you say is the minimum threshold that if you're advising college kids and you say, I can – if you're – amazing at getting reads and and doing all this stuff what's the minimum you need to be what you would say is a great base dealer well first let me say we didn't have and this is not i love my illinois tech guys but they weren't exactly freak athletes um so it's it's just more of it's just more of a matter of actually just will um and also being smart um understanding counts where you can steal in where a breaking ball is going to come right so Mm -hmm. if you're still in a fastball count you know obviously the catcher you know, can get rid of it and throw you out, you know, faster guys can, can run with that. But if I know it's one, two, Oh, two, um, counts like that, where our hitter, you know, depending on where we are in the lineup, if our two, three, four hitters up, I know they're going to see breaking balls, five hitters up, he's going to see breaking balls. So understanding the situation and knowing trying to under and, and, Honestly, watch the pitcher. Watch his timing. What's his move like? How long is he taking when he comes to a set? Is he getting a high leg kick or is he short stepping when he gets the ball with runners on base? So it's just small detailed things that you can get. Uh, even with your leadoff, how you get a leadoff. I've even changed my stance in this uh, with how I coach it. Uh, a lot of times people coach you to get low to the ground. That's actually not what you want to do when you're stealing bases. You actually want to be upright because eventually you come to an upright position anyway. So you're already in a position where you're ready to go. It's harder working from down to high as opposed to already being high and being in a position like on the balls of your feet instead of being flat-footed and different things like that to get good jumps. So Well, your body's going to figure out its spot, right? Like you're going to do that. Um, it's uh, Why am I so outdated? <laughs> Um, you're going to do you're that plyometric man. step, that plyometric step. Yeah. Like your foot's going to come back before it goes forward. Right. I mean, is that what you coach or do you coach the, like, cause this is a sometimes hotly debated thing. It's not really, I don't think it's really that much up for debate because when you watch the world's best base runners, when they take off their front foot goes back with that plyometric step, their body figures out, I need to get this foot under me so I can go where some coaches teach it to dig in and then go. I mean, where do you fall on that? It's funny. I actually don't teach either one of those. I teach with your lead hand and I teach using your hand uh, as leverage. So getting back to the bag, you use your hand and kind of rock with momentum. So now when you're stealing that base, you rip open and you actually explode through it. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, I'm more or less not. No, I'm all about. Which is fine. If if you don't, they're just going to do it the the way the body finds is most efficient. Yeah. And that's, I think what people's point is that if you, 
if you're trying to coach them to mash your front foot, your lead foot into the ground and then put all your weight in and, and then go, your body actually doesn't want to do that. Your body actually wants to say, I don't exactly know what the best takeoff position is. So when I say go, their body moves their foot backwards. It's called a false step. It moves back so and just saying like, this is where the best spot is to take off. And then that low body angle takes off, which makes sense why you don't want to be low because your body's going to reset essentially. Anyway. Yes. A thousand yeah. percent. And you hit on that right on the head. So I, I don't, and, and that's where baseball with coaching gets screwed up because a lot of guys overcoach the game. I try yeah, to keep everything simple. So my mm -hmm. thing again, with that front arm, right, that waving like that. So now you're getting, you're constantly moving and you're on the balls of your feet. The most important part is just being an athlete and having balance. And that's what hitting, fielding, whatever it is we're talking about, basketball, uh, football, right? You need balance as an athlete. So you need to be in a good athletic position, right? But you have to have a, a good base for what, you, what, what you're doing with your lower half and just explode. So, again, the reason why I teach more upper body and using that hand, that front hand, because when you whip it open, you're explosive when you're reactionary, and then you're also diving back to the bag with that. So that allows you to kind of control your body. Gotcha. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, okay. being, good at a, good, being good at base stealing is also – just getting that consistently, the reading the ball in the dirt. Like you can be the slowest guy on the team, but if you see the ball in the dirt and you just take off, you're going to be safe. I mean, there's not many catchers that can go down, block the ball, Meh. put a. Eh, depends. There's not. It depends. There's none. There's none. There's zero catchers in the big leagues that can throw a guy out in the ball on a dirt ball. If you're not if actually you stealing, it. that's not true. Dan, this I mean, is if you not see, up for if, if, I'm, if I'm just at <laughs> first base <laughs> and I see ball in the dirt and I'm like, oh, I'm going to go. It could very well just get blocked, bodied up, and boom, he's going to get me out for sure. No, there's no catchers that can do that. Absolutely. It, there's what, not, are there's not, there's what are you talking about? What are you talking about? If that was the case, more guys would be taking guys would be taking off like it's a little league every time the ball goes in the but, dirt. But that's the point, right? Is Fair. is most guys like your three hole hitter that weighs two forty? Like he's not trying to be aggressive on the bases. But if you got kids that buy in that are that are reading the ball, like consistently making aggressive secondary leads and trying to read the ball in the dirt or trying to read pass ball, whatever, the the pressure puts on the pitcher is okay. I'm throwing an off speed pitch, but I got to keep it up because if I put it in the dirt, like they're going to keep taking bases on me. Like yes. once once you get one or two bases in a in a series, and you see how aggressive a team is on the bases, it changes. Maybe how you're going to call pitches. Maybe it changes what you throw early in the count so you don't give them an extra base early because you put a ball, you know, you spiked a curveball or whatever. So it does put pressure in other spots when you have guys that are actively engaged on the bases, even if they're not base stealers. Like, you can take hard secondaries. You can go first or third. Yes. How do you feel, how do you feel about I – want, I want my question answered, by the way. I want to know the number, but – how do you feel about uh, delayed steals? Do you do that with any of your? I'm not going to ask about your college guys. I don't want you to give all your secrets away, but yeah, your I was, summer, that's your why I'm kind of like torn because I want to go more into this base running thing, but I don't want to give too much. Um. <laughs> give it all away, <laughs> guys. Yeah, if you're listening, Charles invented baseball, so if uh, yeah, no, he's honestly, got secret uh, routes to go first to third. <laughs> no, uh, I do it honestly, first and thirds a lot. Um, you know, to see what we can do off of that when we need runs. I'm, I'm, I'm unconventional. I'm not like most baseball people when you see me coach. I'm nuts. So I feel like I'm always trying to put the pressure on the defense and force them to make a perfect play. 
you have to throw the ball, you have to catch the ball, you have to throw the ball again, and now that person has to tag you and make a clean play. So my thought process is put the pressure on them to be perfect. If they're perfect and they get you out, we tip our cap every single time, right? But we're going to force you to do everything the right way because we have the momentum in that situation on the offense, right? We, we control the pace in that situation. So we want to speed them up. I try to speed teams up and force them to be like, oh, man, I do walk-offs. It's worked at the D1 level. It's worked at every level. Like, people, people get mad. Teams are going to hate me because I do stuff like that. And they're like, oh, okay, we'll stop it. Right. That's how I feel about it. But I'm constantly putting pressure. I bunt a ton. I bunt and run. I squeeze. I could I'll, I could squeeze in the second inning and not think twice about it. If that's something where I feel like it gives us momentum and it forces, again, the defense to be on their heels. And they're, they're not ready for it. You know, so my goal is to try to manufacture runs you know, as best we can. And at Illinois Tech, when we did that, we averaged almost eight runs a game. And it's again, it's unconventional. It's I'm high energy out there. Um, but whatever we got to do, man, double steals. I do that. Guerrilla Gor- um, so, warfare. Hey, I, watched the, I watched the Patriot <laughs> recently. You guys seen that movie? The yeah. Old movie with Mel Gibson. I like yeah. that movie, but yeah. So you guys are like a militia. Yeah. Just ambushing the Brit that you're, you're, you're going well, against the, the British. They just want to stand there and just shoot each other in the face and you're going first and third the, and button and running and squeezing <laughs> the third. Got it. Squeeze in the second inning. I mean, if you're going to get a run out of it, like to your point, if you're going to get a run every inning, you score nine runs a game, like you're going to win all your games. If you, you score nine runs a game, that's, that is a high, high threshold for, for a team to come back from. I mean, it's demoralizing when you give up one, 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 when you're watching, you know, you're looking at the scoreboard. Uh, and then to, to your point, you do a lot of double steals, first and third walk-off stuff. Kids are, it's a, they're almost too programmed. We talked, you talked about it, touched on it earlier, like, I remember being in college and any kind of play first and third, like we didn't really have first and third plays. The first and third plays were either eat it or throw it down the sec straight through. And I was the one covering and it was just get the ball into someone's hands. Who's going to make decisive decisions, whether they're right or wrong. Like if I had the ball, those are my favorite decisions, decisive ones, love a decisive decision. <laughs> you have to, love but, them. but you get to, so you, you do it. You do a walk off. You see it all the time. There's teams that do these gimmick plays where they walk off first base, and then the infielders get the ball and they literally walk towards the runner, like they just walk it. Sprint. Make that guy make a decision. Like he's he's forced. The whole point is to force. I hate that defense. stuff. It's the worst. But, it, just play but baseball. it works. But it works because you've got kids on the field who are who are hesitant. They're not being aggressive towards the play. They're being reactionary towards the play. And when you're reactionary, you're more than likely going to be the one that makes a mistake out of the two parties. A thousand percent, Bobby. That's, thank you, Charles. See, this is why we brought you on to Somebody needs to agree with me once in a while. Well, it's true, though, because here's the thing. And now you're building that mentality into your student athletes. They know you're doing everything you can to get runs and, and we're aggressive. And that's our mindset. So the whole running game is a mindset, right? Like, and our, the grand scheme of things, we want to score runs and we want to jump on people. We want to step on people's throat. We want to score every inning. Like you said, one an inning, right? We put up cricket numbers, five, six, seven. That's great. I love it. But we're, we're trying to just find ways to score, you know, to give us opportunities to be successful. If I feel like any program, if you're averaging six to seven runs a game, you're going to win a lot of ball games if your pitching can throw strikes and you can catch the baseball. So, I'm, I'm just trying to score runs, man, and, and have that mindset of 
we're dogs, you know, we want to do whatever we can to, you know, put runs on the board. We want to change the scoreboard every inning. That's kind of my, my model and what I try to teach these guys. So it so all what's together. your minimum speed to be a good base base dealer minimum 60 time. I don't care. It doesn't matter. No, like, it, it doesn't matter. It can't be eight yeah. one. It can't be eight one. You got to answer it. And if it can't be a one, then it's gotta be some point. So what is it? That's fair. Okay. I would say. It's probably somewhere between like six, seven, nine and seven, three, right? I would say seven, four. That's what I was going to say. Okay. I'm just, I'm just, I was just curious what you'd say, to be honest, because yeah. seven, four is not slow. It's slow for like high level baseball, but in real life, it's not slow. Right. So I was just curious. And if you do get a good jump, like they've still got to make the play, like to your point earlier about making them make the play. So you know, I was just curious. If you just yeah. get a decent jump and the, the ball has to be put on the bag. Like if the catcher's going to put the ball on the bag where the shortstop can catch and tag, most runners are going to be out, you know, regardless. So if you if you can get a decent jump and force the ball to be on the bag, you probably have a at least a better than average shot of stealing a base. Most I mean catchers aren't perfect. That's the that's the thing. Is like kids are hesitant to run and steal bases. It's like look, put the pressure on. Like if we get thrown out, we get thrown out. But you know, a lot of things got to go right to throw you out and you can be safe more times than a, not by just yeah. going. And it's a common misconception. I think I feel like kids today, they think the only kids that can steal the base are like 6'6 six, six runners. And there's so many 6'6 six, six runners who can't steal bases. Like, yes. You suck. You can have, you yes, suck, dude. It, you're super fast and you're the worst. And you don't know how to use it. And that's exactly right. So that's why I started out by saying I really don't have a number. Um, but yeah, it doesn't matter because you can have a kid who has that athleticism and he just no clue, you know, no clue what he's doing with his speed, and that's a waste. Um, yeah. Doesn't know how to get the timing, and I, I mean, I'll let it go, I'll reveal it, I don't care. So a lot of the times when guys like quick step, all right, and I'm I'm timing with a stopwatch too, so I'm constantly seeing like how long it's taking for this guy to get from home, <coughs> from delivery break when the ball is delivered. So I'm watching that even from his warm up pitches, like the urgency of what he has to deliver the ball. Sometimes, <laughs> a lot of the times, actually, you'll have guys that still have that high leg kick. So when you know you yeah. got a guy with a high leg kick, you can cheat a little bit, and you can kind of say, like, hey, on the leg kick, this guy's 1.9 from his hand. So bad. This is so bad. So it's like, right. who teaches these people this stuff? Yeah, yeah, but it, it happens a ton, man. Again, at the at Division One level two, right? It doesn't fail, so – just studying it and paying attention to what the guy's doing, seeing if he's consistent with, you know, his ball delivery and, you know, how fast he gets rid of it. That's a lot of it too. Yeah. Cause if you're, for those of you listening, like in, in pro ball, basically the standard is like one, three, one, four or less. That's when you start your delivery to when your ball hits the catcher's mitt. So that includes the flight time, which is, you know, four tenths of a second. So it's one second start to release and, you know, that does its thing. Um, and so if you're, Thinking about it, in pro ball, the only guys that can really steal bases are like seven flat or better runners, and really more yeah. like the guys that are six eight, six eight, six nine, or, or yeah. faster, right? And even the guys that run a six six who are still rare, they still get caught sometimes. Um, so if you're thinking like six eight plus one point three means you still might be out stealing a base, then if you add a big leg kick and you're a one nine that makes literally every per every player on the field in pro baseball could steal off you like almost literally every player. Cause now you only have to run like a seven, five, seven, six, and everyone in pro baseball is fast enough to do that. Mm -hmm. So, and then in, in high, you know, in, in travel ball, 
catchers are throwing a two four to second base, they all throw it one eights, but really they're throwing like a two four. True. You start doing the math, they've got four and a half seconds to get to second base. Yep. Like who can't steal like that when you're, you're you have this shoes of like kick? Like coaches gotta teach it better. Exactly. You're you're dead on with that. But the problem yeah. is the the opposite is a lot of coaches say a slide step is just like pick your leg up and go. And then pitchers get all out of whack when they do that. They're like, there's, it's like, there's no in between. I teach the little kind of like quick counter movement, which is what most pro guys do. But for whatever reason, it doesn't trickle down to youth baseball as much as it should. It's, it seems like it's only like big leg kick or I just lift my leg and go, which is hard for even pro guys to do. Yeah. You can't just pick up your cleats and go. You end up rushing and falling down the mound a little bit. And that's why guys struggle to throw strikes and they hate it. And then they go back to their big leg kick. You got to find that balance, but. Yeah, I try to teach explosion off your back leg. Hitting and pitching, if you really break it down, are so similar in mechanics um, and what you need to yeah, do. No, they really are, 100% it's, agree. It's, it's almost identical. Foot, hips, and hands, it's same thing when you hit to be mm-hmm. on time, same thing when you pitch. You land with your front foot, you got to rotate your hips, you got to bring your hand through. Um, people don't realize how close that really is, um, but that's another discussion too, but yeah, that yeah. I teach just being explosive on your backside, right. And not selling out and not trying to rush it, just having firm, you know, explosiveness, delivering the ball to home to try to get my pitchers at least to be quick with that. So they're not necessarily thinking about rushing, even if they're from the wind up or stretch, they're constantly thinking about pushing off the mound, being explosive on their back hip. Yeah. And you get, you get the young kids, the kids at a young age, you know, 10, 11 years old, taking pitching, you know, quote unquote pitching lessons. And what do you teach? Like knee up, then get to your power position. And then we throw strikes. It's like, they're, they're almost so robotic by the time they get to, they're not allowed to be athletes. Like you're, you're already taking the athleticism out of just get the ball, get on the mound, play catch with the catcher, like throw the ball hard, throw it over the plate. Let's see what happens. You know, when, especially when they're young, like they're not pitchers, they're just kids that have to pitch. You're not really a pitcher until you stop doing everything else and you only pitch. Like, and at least in my opinion, like even our best 14, 15, 16 year old kids that are two way players, like they're not pitchers, they pitch, but they're not focused on pitching only. Like they're doing everything. And the reason they're good at everything is because they're just being athletic. They're using their, they're using their athleticism. They're not, they're not just mechanical, like, they can sometimes they can slide step. Sometimes they pick their leg up. They just sometimes they're just doing it because they think it's fun. Like they're going to screw with the, the runners and and mix it up a little bit. But then I got I've got some kids who are as young as you know nine ten years old that have pitching coaches. It's like your son doesn't need a pitching coach. He just needs to learn how to play catch, and you can do that with him because if he can throw to a general area, he can pitch, especially I, when they're really little. I want to counter that though, Bobby. Um, you see a lot of kids with arm problems. Um, and you see that because they don't know how to throw and they're using all arms instead of understanding how to use their whole body. Um, you get kids that when they're young like that too, and especially the kids that are above most of the other ones, they're just so raw with what they're doing. They're just throwing, like you, you mentioned, throwing the ball and they're using a lot of stress on their arm instead of understanding how to really use your whole body, how you're not even throwing from your arm, you're throwing from your lower half and the torque that you get when you explode. 
um, you know, when you get to your break point and you come downhill um, and also striding, right, getting your body length, different things like that to close the distance and the timing, you know, from the hitter from from the pitcher's mound. So it's just stuff like that. But I think I see a lot of kids and they get overpitched and overused, you know, with dad coaches or, you know, different things like that. I will say travel organizations are a little bit better. Um, but then when, you know, you get a lot of time, these these players, man, they they don't know how to throw and they get arm problems at 12, 13, 14 years old because they're being pitched too much because they're trying to win. And nobody cares about what you did at 14 years old. And I do. Not- <laughs> I want, I, when I call kids and recruit, I want to know what your trophies, what, what is yeah, it? Show right. me your trophy wall. Give me a couple yeah. photos. Yeah. I want to see and it. Then, yeah. And then you get guys that don't, they're just all arms. So you, you, it takes finding the right person who can really break it down to you to where you understand how your body works. That's the biggest thing, knowing how your body works and getting it to be successful because there's always, whether it's hitting or pitching or whatever you're doing, there's a right way. It doesn't matter how you start, but it matters how you finish for all of it. Whether it be me, you, Dan, you know, whatever. We all may look different in our setup, but when we get to our hitting position, we all have to look the same, right? Yeah, we may look different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we may look mm-hmm. different in the way we deliver, but we know we got to finish over our across our body. And that's something that can't be changed. So stressing things that are absolutes and trying to get that into, you know, the players' heads or something, that's how you get to the next level of success when you're coaching them. Yeah, and that's kind of how I would explain it when I'd be doing our, my like initial pitching analysis with a new new client. I'd be like, hey, you know, like, what's the difference between a minivan and a Ferrari? Like a lot of things, but they all have tires, engines, axles, like seats, steering wheel, like, and that's how pitching mechanics are and hitting mechanics are. There's going to be the same stuff that all the good ones do, but all the other things are going to be different, you know? But they're still, those are still cars, and you can still be a pitcher even though you don't have to look like the next guy. So, yeah, yes. that's a good point. Dan, you, uh, you touched on something I want to ask Charles about. It's the recruiting. So you're a new college coach. How are you navigating recruiting now, especially you can't go out and see – you can go out and see players. Division three can go see players now, I believe. Is that correct? But when, yeah. you're, when you're locked in the house, you know, how are you recruiting guys? And quarantine recruiting, what's the, what are the basics? We so need I, to I'm laughing. I want to cut in. I'm laughing because I was with, – with the digital recruiting – I wonder if anyone's ever been catfished. Like, I wonder if some player was like shown, sending like you video, like what's come to your school and they just don't actually exist. We could do this. This would be amazing. Let's make up, let's find some like old video of like a kid like 1998 who throws like fuel and let's like, Hey, I'm Johnny Smith and I want to come to Vanderbilt. Like, Oh, and just like be definitely good enough where they start talking. And then just like, he never existed. <laughs> that would oh be awesome. Damn. Just right, anyway, videos of Dan. Any, anyway. Okay. I'm done. Uh, it's, I'm done. it's it's been a lot of it is it is you know video stuff um and a lot of it's talking to coaches um so for me when i'm watching a video on a guy i'm not looking at results of what he's doing um as far as the you know parent people players coaches are sending me when the kid hits a home run okay well i don't care about that i want to watch a ball that he rolls over on because i'm seeing what he does in his swing i'm seeing what they do off the mound i'm looking for are they being consistent? And I just hit on it a little bit. Everybody has to finish the same way. doesn't matter who you are across the board. So I'm looking to see how they're getting to that point of consistency with their body and how it works and how I can help develop them. So the way I break down the video um, is a, maybe a little bit different, but I could see a, a guy swing one time and have an idea of the type of hitter that they are kind of for, for what I'm looking for and what we want to do with them. 
same thing with pitching. So it's just mechanical is what you're looking for. It's not results. Okay. Okay. How important are grades? Huge. Um, and that, again, we, we talked about that a little bit ourselves off. Um, you know, it, it's huge because it, it goes hand in hand. And I try to deliver the message to these guys that it, it's life. Um, I've got a daughter. It's her birthday, by the way. Happy birthday, Charlotte. We love you. Uh, she's Happy birthday, Charlotte. Today. I don't you. know you, but you sound great. <laughs> she's awesome. Uh, so yeah, it's just, you know, understanding that when you have to provide for your family, once you get beyond baseball and you become a real man, just the priorities in life and what you need to do and just the structure that you need to have. Um, all that stuff is set up by grades. Um, and to me, it, you know, I don't talk about it a ton in recruiting because to me, it's just an expected, um, you know, exactly what you need to do coming in the door. I, I hit on and I literally do that. Like, you know, exactly what you need to do. I expect you to do it. Um, you, you have all the time in the world in college where in high school, it's the same boring, repetitive thing every single day. It's a job, but you in college, planets, you learn about <laughs> the dinosaurs, yeah, it's, what yeah, the different like, continents yeah. are, Pangea, yeah. like who cares in, in college, <laughs> in college, <laughs> in college, you have more time, right? Cause on Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes, those are 50 minutes. And then Tuesday, Thursday classes are 90 minutes. So you have a ton of time. So it's about time management. Um, I try to explain that to them about how they need to, you know, balance everything, but it's, you can't, you can't be, you know, that's why I say student athlete first, student first, athlete second. So yeah, kids really, they don't realize how much different college class schedule is in high school, high school, you're eight hours a day. You're going to class. Like you've got, you know, you go to math every single, you know, second period, you go to English college. It's like, you're almost self-learning. Like you can miss class. Like they don't yeah, realize. Or, yes. or zero hours a day. It's whatever amazing. you want to do. It's whatever a, you yes. want to do. Yeah. It's like great. that I first to... semester of college, you, you're like, this is the easiest school I've ever been to. You know, I, used just... to I used to miss class and have girls in the class take notes for me. I probably shouldn't say this out loud, <laughs> but I would do stuff like that all the time. Hey, This I... is how you get recruits. <laughs> Coach Bowman is relatable. Man, see, I, I couldn't have – man. <laughs> So when recruit when we'll recruits edit that part are, out for Charlotte, so when she watches this in ten years, <laughs> no, listen, yeah, I don't edit you. any. Listen, don't I don't edit anything because my my thing with her and parenting, if she doesn't learn it from me, she's gonna learn it from somebody else in the street, and I'd rather have me teach it to her so she already has it. The last thing I want okay. is her to come home and tell me something that her friend told her. Okay, so she's she's learning today that she should get boys to take uh, notes for. Her. Got it. No, she's, she's, she's learning that she she's learning that she hates boys and she loves daddy. That's a that's a good. Gotcha. Point. <laughs> she's okay. that she you won't talk Fair to enough. boys till you're thirty. <laughs> so you know, as a as a how, as a college, newly uh, appointed head coach, how are you? Like, how do you prefer recruits get in touch with you? Do you like when guys email you? Do you what are you looking for in an email from a recruit? you know, are recruits allowed? Should they call you? You know, what's, if you're, if you're watching this and you're a 17 year old kid or you're a junior going into your senior year and you're looking at trying to get in touch with college coaches, how do you prefer they get in touch with you specifically? And you know, what's, what are some key things they need to include in when they're reaching out? That's a great question, actually. And thank you for asking that. Myself, personally, I got my own scholarship in college. Um, I didn't wait for the coach to help me. Um, and that's kind of like my whole, you know, mentality and makeup. But yeah, I email coaches all the time, gave them my numbers, my, my statistics. Um, and back then video wasn't as like the technology wasn't nearly as far advanced as it is now. You can literally snap on your phone a video. You send and a send VHS it, tape via mail. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to do that back in the day. No, you but did. it's it's you actually it's did. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like it's it's not the same thing. Um, so yeah, I video, you know, I just want to see them. Um, I love players that want to take initiative who want to be good. So I did it as a player. So I encourage all of you, whether you're coming to Eau Claire, whether you're going anywhere, um, don't rely on other people. Use yourself as a resource. Don't rely on your travel coaches. If you really want something, find a way to make it work and go get it yourself. Send videos, you know, tell yourself your story about why you want to play collegiate baseball and give some stats to to back it up. But the biggest thing is video so they can coaches can see it. Yeah, you have to sell yourself, right? Like you, yes. no one's gonna no one's gonna sell and sell you better than you know you can sell yourself, especially when you're reaching out to some schools that you generally have interest in. Like you have to, they're not just gonna come walking in, you know, walking through the door. And it's tough to convey that to some kids. You get a lot of kids. You ask them where they want to go to school, and then it's like, well, have you been to their campus? Do you know anything about the school? No, they just know that you know University of Illinois is in Champagne, and they like Champagne because they see it on TV or. They see the basketball. They see team champagne play. on TV. No, who's champagne you know, who's champagne, putting champagne baby. Illinois on TV? Who's oh, putting yeah, champagne on TV? U of I, Big Ten basketball. Okay. They see it, but they know, like you know, the bigs. Everybody knows the big schools in their state. You know, you're in Wisconsin. Everybody knows Wisconsin. Like everybody knows Wisconsin. But if <laughs> wait, what know, does that mean? Everyone knows Wisconsin. The University of Wisconsin. Wisconsin. Everybody knows schools. the Badgers. Oh, it's all okay. straight Badgers. I'm like, I, that, that's probably like one of the states that people don't know much about or care about. <laughs> Who cares I about Wisconsin? They got cheese. Easy, easy. I love cheese. the state of Wisconsin. They help pay my bills. I love that university. Okay. No, I right. think you always say yeah. that. A big, a big thing that I want to say, though, with that, you have to be realistic as a player, okay? I understand that you want to play at the highest level, but are you realistically – is that something that is capable of you doing? You have to be real with yourself, okay? If you're not a Division One player and you don't truly understand what it takes to get to that level, ask somebody who you trust, okay? Like, don't yeah, send videos to schools – if you're sending a video to Mizzou, chances are they're not going to get back to you, okay? I'm just putting that out there, okay? A guy like me, yes. A Division three school, absolutely. I'm looking to find diamonds in the rough. That is my thing, right? It, you have to understand yourself. Know yourself as a person, okay? Don't say you're a Division one player if you have no – Nothing basically from your your past to back up that coming true because you're going to be disappointed and you're wasting your time. Okay, like I just need to say that. Like, know yourself, know yourself. Yeah, it's really, you're right. It's really hard. You, you do need someone to. You need to just ask and like, hey, how good am I? Be honest, because people don't want to be honest with themselves. And I had a good conversation with a high school coach a while ago, and he was he had one kid who was a Division One commit. And he wasn't getting any scholarship money. And this was like a pitcher who was like 86 to 89, you know, like 6'2". And he was basically like the best player that had come through that high school in a long time. And he was going to a local D1. It was Illinois State. Um, good program. And he wasn't getting any scholarship money. And so there's other kid on this team, this high school uh, coach's team. He, uh, Their parents were like, you know, he's, we know he can play Division One, And he's like, look who's the best player that you know? Like your teammate is like one of the best players that you've ever played with. He's like the best player within a large like driving radius and he's not even getting scholarship money. You're not a division one player. He was just trying to gently break it to this kid. Like you're not on his level. That's why these schools aren't calling. He's on that level and he's not even getting any money. Yes. Like, I mean, you, they stick out those guys. Yeah. Is he, is he a division one player? Like there's never been a kid that I've seen in youth, like where, 
somebody asked me like, can he play division one? And if he could, I wasn't emphatic about it. Yes. Yes. He's a hundred percent. He's the best player at his high school. He's the best player in the area. He's hits. He clearly outperforms everybody. Like those guys are clearly head and shoulders above everybody else. They're not fringe guys. They don't, bat sixth on the bat on the high they school right? yes. they're, they're scary yes. they just want to walk them they're free they they're, the ball. they're, 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 they're freaks. freaks yes they're different like i tell people all the time you can work your butt off almost curse you can work your butt off and you can't throw 96 that's genetics you either have that or you don't okay that does not mean that you can't work hard and throw 82 and make the most of that 82 if you learn how to pitch so it's not always the metrics and the numbers but again like understand that you're again know yourself and get the most out of your ability right and don't compare yourself necessarily about you know if i don't throw 96 i don't have an opportunity now you're not going to be able to pitch advantage Vanderbilt again understand that but you can pitch it like a I don't want to just name any you can pitch at an Eau Claire if you throw 83 miles an hour and you have an idea of how to throw strikes and you're consistent in your mechanics um, and you know how to pitch backwards you'll have a chance with me all day um, but again just you know it's just it's hard work man yeah. it, it comes down to that it's opportunity yeah. too I mean you you might be you might be the guy I just explained like the freak that's superstar shortstop and all area but that doesn't mean you're going to play at the D1 because everybody is yes. you on that team. So do yes. you want Are you yeah. going to go there and be happy sitting for maybe yes. be really all four years? Mm-hmm. It's going to be like you got to you got to pick by fit. I mean, if you're a Division One player and you're a guy that's going to show up on campus day one and be a dude, you know that already. Like you were identified when you were 13 years old. Like you've you already that, been drafted, probably like. Like yeah. you just have, like you have something that's different that sticks <laughs> out. Your worst day is still better than everybody else's day on the field. Like you're just that much better. Yeah. And well, you don't want to be I, that guy. Like you don't want to be the guy that sits and watches. You want to be the guy on the field. Yeah. And I have a good story actually. I mean, it's literally that exact thing. So when mm. I was playing in uh, middle school, I played in the Baltimore Metro League, which was like the best league here in, in the Baltimore area. And uh, I had a teammate named Mike Ficini. And we were real close, and he ended up moving away to North Carolina uh, right before we both started high school. And like we stayed in touch for a little bit, then we kind of faded up, faded out, and we like didn't really talk that much anymore. Bad you know, friend, and I man. would like look him, huh? Bad what? friend, yeah, You're bad, bad friend. friend. Um, <laughs> but I checked in on him a little bit, and we were like similar in build or whatever before he left. He grew up, became six five, um, and he was North Carolina State Pitcher of the Year or Player of the Year two years in a row. Uh, and I heard that he was basically like six five, throwing eighty eight to ninety, like basically like the best, you know, again like one of the best pitchers in the state. Went to UNC, played for the Tar Heels, never played four years. Do you know who his teammates were? That what time period that was? Andrew Miller, Andrew Miller, Andrew Miller. Dan, Daniel Bard, Robert Woodward, Woodard. Like, I mean, you're not. You're can you not imagine being the state only player of the year twice in a row? Like his high school, he like won those big high schools that like. Was when, I think he won two state championships with them, and he never yeah, but, he got like thirty innings lifetime. Yeah, there. but but the problem with that is everybody at that level has done that. They're the, they're yeah. equivalent to you. They're no like that's yeah. the thing when you get to the college level, people don't realize it's a national thing, right? You were the best guy in your area, but guess what? You're on yeah. a team full of thirty guys that also were the best guy in their area. Yeah. That were also Gatorade Player of the Year nominees. That were also first team All State. Also hit four hundred. Uh, you mm-hmm. know. And 500 in their career with 16 home runs. Like everybody is equal yeah. 
His you teammates were second round draft picks, fifth yeah, round draft picks. And then yes. after a good freshman year, he's like, all right, maybe I'll, well, and I don't know this because we didn't talk. So there, there could be other contexts, but I remember seeing him on TV in the college world series, just like in the dugout. So it didn't seem like he was hurt or anything, but you know, like every year at a school like that, it's like, all right, you have a good freshman year. Now you're hoping you'll get some innings the next year, but then guess what? They signed four other yes. pitchers who were, who were fifth, fifth round picks. And it's like, Oh, now they're ahead of me too. It's like, and if you and if you're that good and you're a kid and you're someone who's got work ethic, like you that if he with this specific pitcher you're talking about, if he would have went to my like college and I like, or like Elon, like a really, I mean, there's a lot of really good schools in North Carolina, like UNC yeah. Wilmington yeah. or he, Charlotte. He could have been like a Friday, Friday starter, yeah, the Friday mm-hmm. starter, and now you have a chance to so like Charles went to high school with a kid that I worked out with, Rory O'Connor. Um, Charles, you remember Rory? I think thousand percent. He, yeah, he actually so, just got a head coaching job at Lighton. I say, yeah, I talked to him. Um, he committed to Florida state, like dream school. I, you know, I've talked to him after the fact he has no regrets, but he, he left high school early, left his senior year to go play that spring for Florida state. So essentially a high school senior starting on foot in Florida state's uh, outfield. And then he plays, you know, starts 30 games, which is really, you know, impressive for a freshman at Florida state university does. Okay. Hits, you know, two fifty ish. And then the next year, the new crop of kids who are his age come in, and all of a sudden he still finds himself as a spot starter because who do you have coming in? Buster Posey, Tony Thomas, like all these superstars. <laughs> are they good? <laughs> Who's that and he's Posey a, guy? And, and you're the kid, and you, you know they're Florida guys, they're Southern guys, and you're a kid from Chicago, you know suburbs of Chicago, and I go to NIU and I I struggle my freshman year, but I never sit, I never you know I'm on high scholarship. Uh, they're almost forced to keep me in the lineup because they got to get their mm-hmm. money's worth out of me. Yeah, yeah. And I'm talking to him while he's in college. And, you know, I know he loved his experience. I know he would still go back there. That was his dream school. But what What if, what if you stay in Illinois and you're, yeah. you know, he's, he's one of those guys in the running for high school player of the year and he maybe get drafted out of Illinois and you don't get drafted. You end up not playing, you know, at all your junior, senior year, you get hurt, you know, stuff happened with them specifically, but, I mean, you're talking about you work that hard to get to that level and then to just put yourself at the back of the line based purely on the school you chose when you could have been at the front of the line with opportunities. And I just, you know, you have to pick a good fit for yourself. I mean, be realistic. You know, you go to some of these schools, you go out of state, you go to Florida and you're a kid from the Midwest. You're not one of those guys. Like, you're just not prioritized. You're already you're behind. In, you're behind. You're state guys, yeah. Um, my, my dad has a quote, and I remember this forever. Um, and I wish I'd have realized it more while I was actively playing. He always used to tell me, be a big fish in a little pond, right? Oh, yeah. um, and, and that that means, like, and I've always remembered that. Like, he and I, you know, we talk all the time and stuff. And, like, that's, like, the one thing I always go back to. And that that's going to you guys' point is, again, like, go to a situation where you're going to be a, a primary focus and a guy. Like, it's people always look at the label and what's on, you know, and, and the – the attention and I was guilty of it with making the stupid mistakes that I made. I should have went to a junior college for two years, save money a right. And also gave myself a chance to see where I was at. Like, Hey, go put up some numbers. And that, that's my biggest regret. I never had an opportunity to put up numbers to really at the next level with a full season to really be like, Hey, this is what this guy can do. I was always just so, you know, impulsive with the decisions that I made. I didn't give myself a chance, you know, and that, that's a yeah. great point. And that's why I try to talk to a lot of guys about that and why I'm a coach. Must be a Midwest thing because my dad says it all the time. Even with the high school I went to, I went to a small private high school as opposed to maybe a big public school or a bigger private high school that had more of an athletic program. 
it's like, Hey, be a big fish in a little pond, you know, get, be the guy that, you know, that has to be pushed to the front of the line because it's a smaller school and you get to play more and more opportunities, more opportunities you get, the more chance you have to succeed. I mean, it's, it's just basic. That's true. And it's, to be dealt, to be devil's advocate, I mean, there are other people on the other side of the fence, like Alex Gordon, who's still in the big leagues, right? Is he still in the mm-hmm. big leagues? Yeah. Yep. He, he was undrafted in high school, went to Nebraska. Kind of like, I don't know what his, how he was ranked within Nebraska's <laughs> roster, but he went from undrafted to, you know, first round draft pick. And, and there's yeah. stories like that too. And but it I, just depends. I'll say with it always that depends. Though, he also throws 95. And no, again, Alex Gordon, the, the position player. No, I know. He's got a hose. Like, he's got a cannon. Oh, he was a, a third baseman athlete. and yeah, got yeah. moved to the outfield. Like, my point is he had that freak. He had that in him, and he just got that opportunity and went to the next yeah. level. Like, again, like, I wouldn't have been able to do that. I didn't throw in the 90s. I threw high 80s. All I was right, like, my example's 80. terrible, Charles. Fine. I, I just got to keep you honest. Fine. That's my this job is, here, right? This is fantastic. <laughs> I'm enjoying the hell out of this, by the way. <laughs> well, I think, I think a good analogy is, I mean, you just think about, like, keeping your head above water. Like, sure, you can, like, try to swim across the channel, right? And yeah. you might make it. Or you could, like, have some water wings on it. It gives you just a little easier if it gets really rocky out there. Because that's the other thing you just don't know. Like, yeah, maybe you could get innings at Florida State. But what if you have a little bit of an arm injury? Like, what yes. if you roll your ankle a couple of times? Now you don't have any room for fail- for any room for error, and now you are done. Whereas if you have a little more, they'll wait for you. You know, like, okay, we want Dan to come back. He's been a little banged up. We'll give him a little chance. But you don't yeah. have much margin for error at those big schools, and that's where it can be the nail in the coffin. You know, they got 20 guys as good as you in the fall. You roll your ankle and you don't get the chance to pitch. Smell you, you know, it's not everyone's yeah, fault, but smell you. Yeah. It's a business. People, mm-hmm. sports are a business at the college level. I tell guys that all the time. Like I don't have favoritism. I don't have any of that stuff. Like mm-hmm. my, my job is to win. You know, my job is to um, put the best people on the field that are going to give us an opportunity to be successful. Right. Um, and I know, you know, and that's just me, not everybody's like that guy, you know, other coaches have different agendas and stuff like that. But my job is to put myself and my team in the best possible scenario to win. Why would I not want to play the best guys? And to you guys' point, I have a kid on the team actually that committed to us that could have been a walk on at another, at a division one school, but he stepped back and realized this is an opportunity, you know, with having me as a coach with the style that I have um, and him understanding that he can come to a program, start the program, like being able to start a program is a unique opportunity. And that's not something a lot of people can say they did. So there's a whole different legacy to that. Now he could have went to this division one school and been just another guy as a walk on. Cause that's what they offered him. Mm-hmm. Or he could come to us, right. Probably pay less tuition, uh, be in a situation where he could potentially be a four-year starter and say he started a program and set his own legacy. That that's that's something. yourself a statue. You hit a bomb the first game. You're the home career home run leader. It's like what? It is. (laughs) I mean, that is a thing though. Like you know, not everybody makes it to the pinnacle of their of their sports profession, right? Like he may never get to the big leagues, but he could be. You know, he could be the best player in Eau Claire history for a long time if he if he pans out, or he could he could be the all time hits leader and first yes. all conference guy. Like that stuff is cool when you're you know if I was you know my age our age looking back thirty five like if you have those accolades those are those are cool things cool plaques on your wall you know nice thing nice good memories nice things to talk about you know if they get brought up you talk to your kids about it like hey 
Like I wasn't such a terrible person and baseball player. Like, look at this. Look at this. I'm or, Eau Claire, I'm Eau Claire's greatest player. Or you could say you went to the University of Florida and you were a cheerleader. Hey, let's watch the College World Series. Did you see me there with my towel on my head and how crazy we were going in the dugout? It's up to you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and, and last point here, because I do want to switch to the the Black Lives Matter stuff and, and we want to cover that at the end. But um, in your experience, like you've been around, all of us have been around and seen different programs. Do you feel like people have a have a – a, a real good understanding of what college baseball looks like because in one of my, in my softball podcast, my first episode was called is D one softball really just travel ball for 20 year olds. And when you go to mm. the field and you see that there's really just parents and grandparents and a couple other athletes from other sports and boyfriends and girlfriends, whatever, that's a, essentially the experience of most division one baseball programs, pretty much all division two, II, division three and junior college, right? There's just parents watching. Obviously, you have better coaching, you have better facilities, but there's not that ma- when you really think about it, there's not that many differences between travel baseball and Division One baseball. Oh. Until you get to the really big programs, how do you how do you feel? Am I right? Am I wrong? No, I don't think you're off with that by any means. I think that's accurate. And I think that's actually a good way if you're a player to look at it. You don't and, want the moment yeah, my, to be too and big. And my point is, like, if you go to NIU Division One or Eau Claire. Like the fan, the spectator experience, like the facilities experience, it's not that different. Well, if it you is. Go to LSU we're gonna, we're gonna, we're actually going to have more different. fans. We're going to have more fans in Eau Claire <laughs> than in IU. Yeah. Dude, okay, well, are you, you kidding me? No, I'm dead serious. Yeah, you this, know. Uh, no, no way. The yes. sororities at NIU no. were coming out in full force. Listen to me. Wait, Bobby, this, you're not there anymore. I mean, exactly. who's, I mean, well, now, yeah, now the draw's the next gone. handsome man after Bobby at NIU. It's like, <laughs> I mean, I, you set I mean, a high bar. You set yeah, a high the, bar. The drop-off is significant. Not everybody can have a fan club like you in NIU, man. That left <laughs> as soon as you left, man. Bobby was in hot pursuit me. of men's health. Uh, what, what was the men's health thing you're trying to do all those years I ago? I was like man of the year or something like they were like yeah. doing every man of the year. So just a normal Bobby person. shoots for this. He shoots for the moon, wants to be the mayor of Chicago, which I read that yes, article. Like mayor. Listen to her soundbite. God, she's just the worst, huh? She's so it's incompetent. Getting, Charles, it's getting tough out in that Chicago. Alderman. Listen, it's getting tough in Chicago. Yikes. It's, it's, it's hard. They have a tough job. I, I see it from both sides. I mean, I'm at the point where I'm really annoyed with this whole thing. Um, and it just, I, I mean, I don't know. I, how long can we continue going the way we're going? I mean, if you think about it, we haven't heard, has anybody, when was the last time you guys really heard about coronavirus? It's gone. Went away. Well, it's no, it still very much exists. It's, it's, just, it's, it's just the protests have, have completely gone. taken that over. So my question is, if, if you allow something like protests to outweigh something that's a national pandemic that put everybody on shutdown, right? Now we're in the situation that we're in. Like, what are we doing? Like, how important is it? Is it still that important? Because really a pandemic, obviously, right? That's why people are losing their lives. And obviously Black Lives Matter is the same thing. But, like, my thing is just how important is this? What are we doing? Like, are we stressed? Like, I just don't get it. I feel – and everybody's just kind of – I don't know. It's it's crazy. That's well, a whole other topic, though. I don't want to get into it's, politics. It's tough to navigate the – like, what's being reported on, like, you know, what's getting airtime. Like, obviously, riots, the protests, everything that's going on now is getting a lot of airtime. But the last two and a half months, coronavirus was getting all the airtime. And it's 
you only know what's being reported unless you're really digging into, you know, things that are going on in the country that you have to almost seek out that information. And most people aren't seeking out extra information. I was going to say that. Yeah. You're not, most people are not just seeking out extra information. There's a lot of parent, like a lot of people, like, especially people in the, in the generation before us, our parents, like they watch the news, then they know what the news tells them. So, and that's, and that's been their way of, you know, getting information in the world for 50 years, which isn't a wrong. It's just, that's all that they only know what they're being told. So the last, uh, excuse me, prior two and a half months, coronavirus. Now it's, you know, protests, riots, Black Lives Matter until the next thing comes along. And then you probably won't hear about coronavirus or Black Lives Matter until something pops up again where it's it's head of, you know, head well, of the I get that. I, I get what you're saying with the news cycle. But this I mean, the the protests have been significant. I mean, this has been a like what wouldn't they have overtaken? And I no, think no, all of us are right. probably they, ready no, for no, a no distraction doubt, no from, doubt. from COVID. Yeah, definitely. Um, no, no doubt. So you're you're in a yeah. you're in a unique situation, Charles, because you Eau Claire's about ninety miles from Minneapolis, I think. I looked it up. So an you know, hour and a half. Yep. You're close to you're close to the area where all this stuff started. Um, Got a lot of players from Minnesota too. So what what's been your messaging to players? Like, how are you communicating? You've got a, obviously a unique background and a and a perspective. You're from the Chicago area, which is big, big black uh, black community, and then you go to Eau Claire, which is a smaller town, but your proximity to a national news story. What's been the messaging to players? You know, what are you trying to convey to them as you know young kids? in a crazy time in the world. So not only have I talked with my college guys, I also, I have a travel organization. I talked about the havoc. I have a 13 U team. I sat down with them and talked to them about this too. Um, and I think the biggest thing is to have conversations. Um, when you get into racism and you start immediately, people go like they get tight and they're like, Oh, they get really defensive. Um, so I think, and, and don't get me wrong, being a black man, I, I could tell you countless stories about the injustices that I face from being, you know, racially profiled by cops, uh, interactions, being called the N-word. I could go, and again, and now if I react to things like that, yeah, I'm held to a different standard. So if I, if I respond and I go beat somebody up, if they call me the N-word, now them calling me the N-word is completely gone out the door and the only focus is going to be me and my actions for what I did. So I understand and I understood from a young age that being a black man, especially educated in America, I'm 1%. I'm less than 1%, right? And I'm blessed to have the opportunity to be around different people. You know what I mean? And not everybody has that exposure. I think the biggest thing that people really need to do is listen, shut up and listen, and have compassion for people. And I know it's a black, white thing, but I don't even like that, okay? Because I could use all my experiences and I would not be where I am right now in the world. Racism is a world problem. Everybody deals with something. Irish people dealt with something when they came over. Women deal with it right now. They make 81%. Canada is still really bad. Did either you see that video of that police chief, that uh, that Indian chief from uh, Canada just getting beat up, getting out of his car by cops? Yeah. He got pulled over because his license plate was expired. He yep. was out of his car for four seconds. Cop pulls his arm, and the other guy, and another another cop comes off screen, runs over, and tackles him. Yep, and they yeah. just beat him. I mean, it's incredible. And then the the Royal Canadian Mounted Police said, "We reviewed the video, and we didn't find any reason to review it further." It's like, are you are you insane? You just yep. tackled the dude out of the blue for having an expired license plate. 
Now, ridiculous. The, the pro- the Apparently, that runs though, really deep there too. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now the problem though is black people come make up thirteen percent, and I think eight, seven, seven percent of of blacks are female. So now I'm a small percentage. Okay. So now, if you kill five black male, you're almost destroying the percentage a, a great amount. And now those black children don't have a father there's no husband like i think a lot of times in minority communities you need to understand how the society and and the way these things are set up it's systematic okay and it's not an excuse it's not made up it's the reality of the situation i am a college degree okay it's hard enough for me getting a job let alone being from an area where everything if you look around it it's a third world country, right? And people only, the the biggest problem that I have with everybody, people only care about things that affect them. If it doesn't affect me, it doesn't matter, right? I have discussions with people all the time, right? And I talk about people, you know, I I talk with anybody who wants to talk about this stuff. And I ask them, if they may not know a lot of black people, I say, what would you do if it was me? The way you know me, how you feel about me, would you think differently about these things? And every single time, that person says yes. And I ask them, why am I different, right? I'm no different than they are because that could easily be me. I could easily be George Floyd, okay? Like just over something stupid, like them thinking I had a counterfeit dollar, okay? Like running, okay? You get a black guy got gunned down running. I run every damn day. Every other day I'm constantly running. So it, it's, it's crazy, you know, the times that we're in. It's definitely unfair, but I just want to get across that it's a, it's a world thing and we need to just be better Um, and have more conversations. And I think that's the key. Like me throwing down your throat all day, Black Lives Matter, matter, you're going to resist that most of the time. But if we sit down and have a conversation and I'm like, hey, this is a big problem. Let me tell you about how I grew up. Let me tell you, like you tell me about how you grew up and we exchange stories. You'll find that you have more in common with people than you actually know. And when it, when you, it really comes down to it, it's people, Um, And and that's how I look at it, man. I just, I don't choose to use my negative life experiences. It's definitely something that's prevalent. I've dealt with it my whole life. I've accepted it. I've learned how to navigate that. And I've learned how to work through that. I have a daughter, my wife, she's white. My daughter's mixed, right? Um, And we're going to have to teach her differently about the world. Now she's fortunate to be able to have both. And she's going to be so culturally ahead of a lot of people in her life, just having both of us and our different life experiences and families. But it, it's real, man. It just comes down to people. Um, and it comes down to just having an understanding really for what people are going through. And everybody's going through something. We all have our own struggles. Like you do Dan, you do Bobby, I do myself. Um, we just having those conversations about each other and getting to know each other. It, it's the biggest thing I can't, I have to stress that because you, you got to talk. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, it's tough to open that door. I remember. So in, in one of my seasons, I had one of my, my closest friends was, <laughs> one of my few black teammates, we were, we were like locker mates. Like our lockers were really close together. We lived together off the field. And, uh, so I had one of those conversations with him because a lot of, you know, in, in the, in a clubhouse, there's only a handful of types of music played, right? It's usually like rap or something like it's more like the popular stuff that most guys like. I listen and, to a lot of Latin music. Like yeah, I yeah, a there's lot a lot of, of reggaetone going too. Cause but it gets so, you pumped up. But so, so I was sitting next to him as another teammate put on all this, um, all this rap music and there's like, you know, the N word floating around, which is not like, you know, obviously there's a difference between it ending with a and ending with ER, right? There's a clear difference. But so I'm just sitting there and I feel like kind of uncomfortable sitting next to my buddy. Cause I'm like, how does he feel about this? 
you know, like, like, like as a white guy, I'm not going to sing along. Right. Like I, I'm not a huge rap fan in general. I like some rap, but not all. Um, so one day since we lived together, I asked him like, Hey man, like, how do you feel like about that word? Like in rap, is it okay in rap? Is it okay? Like, cause some people use it casually. Some, some guys don't like it's, it's more in your culture than it is in mine. Like, you know, and, um, and I asked him and he's like, his answer was, I don't use it. He's like, I don't give it any power. He's like, it's not Me a part either. of my life. He's like, that's, that's my stance. And I really respected that. And other guys, that's not their stance. And that's okay. It's, it's, it's individual, right? I don't know, but I just wanted to hear his perspective. And he, and he told it to me and he said, I don't, I don't perpetuate that word in any, any derivative of it. That's a thousand percent it, man. And I feel the same way. Um, you know, like the, and I have a problem with it, you know, because you're almost giving them the opportunity to get away with it. What do you think they're saying when they're in their cars? Right? So if you, and people aren't smart enough to understand the difference and, and let's also understand that slavery was not that long ago. Slavery were, were, was within our parents age. Right? So I feel like now it's huge change and the media doesn't want to talk about it. Look at these damn protests. It's 98% white people out there protesting for black lives matter, right? That's huge. And that's how we're, we're moving in the right direction. Cause the younger generations with the lesbians and the, you know, transgenders, however you feel about that, people that are different are being accepted. And I think that's a positive thing. And I think we're moving in the right di direction as a society because people are now speaking up. I think it took way too long, but I think we definitely are moving in the right direction. Just like, I don't think it's fair to put the rioters in the same, you know, category and the looters as the protesters. Those no. are different groups that was just that like, was news cycle bullshit that was yeah. bullshit. just like hey just like cops right like not all white cops are racist i'm buddies with a lot of cops like mm -hmm. not there's good not all black people are murderers i'm not a killer right not all people are the same and you know it's frustrating when you hear stories that are like limited and they get this like hype and it, it's something where it's like it's a my like a small percentage and don't get me wrong it should have the attention i just don't think it's fair to say all and every like you get into that's just that's going down the wrong road when you start putting isolated incidents into a whole category of people and that's the biggest problem we're at with racism but again getting back to that i i'm not either i don't use any derogatory terms because as a black man people call me that and i've been called that so i cannot perpetuate that word and and having that as to something where I feel like it's okay because it's in the song. I, I hate it actually that they do that so much because you're, you're devaluing the importance of what that word actually means and you're making it acceptable and people don't understand the power of that word because they weren't a part of it. Yeah. And, and what I, so like in this letter that I wrote to, to young white athletes, and this was just like me sharing my experience and, and just my understanding of it all. Um, I don't know why, but like some, for whatever reason in my upbringing, I was exposed to just like, maybe it was, I don't think it was in school, but for some reason I was exposed to what lynching was. Like I was exposed, mm. like I, I remember watching Roots and I'm not like a squeamish person on TV, but I'm really squeamish to like cruelty and like torture. Like, I don't want to watch any of those. I can watch a horror movie that's like just gruesome, but I can't watch one that's like really cruel. Right. Like there's a difference. And I just remember as a kid, like watching roots and just being like, Oh my God, like the, the way they depict cruelty towards slaves, which was I'm sure mild compared to what actually happened. I mean, it was horrific. And then just like yeah. learning and learning in books about lynching and seeing these people hung from trees. It's horrific. And that's for, from a young age, I just learned that like, that was the word they called them as they strung up in innocent people and like burned them alive and did horrific things to them. That was the association. I just somehow came to as a kid 
And so like, I've always just like carried that that was like the worst word that you just don't use. And that was just, I, I don't, I didn't earn that. I, I like, that was just like, I was, I feel lucky that I was exposed to it in that way. I, and again, I don't exactly yeah. know why. I don't think my parents went out of their way to do anything. I just mm-hmm. think like somehow in my education, I just was like very aware of America's history with slavery and, and lynching and the cruelty of it. And, and so and you just, so, and, and kids don't know that. And little yes. kids don't know that. And I had a conversation with two kids one day in my town. I'm like, do you know what that word means? And neither of them knew because they didn't learn it in school. They were eighth graders. And I'm like, imagine if your little, if your little brother was walking home from school and a mob just took him and murdered him. Yes. Yes. Brutal way. And there was no justice. It's you can't even, there's not even like a word that describes how you would feel about that. Like your dad, your mom just gets murdered for no reason in a, it's just like, yeah, it's a good point that what you talk about, like what you, you're, you're younger. You only know what you learn in school and what your parents teach you. Like the school system isn't necessarily offering up all the information of what the history of the world is or what the history of the U S is like you have, sometimes you have to seek that information out and you only know from your own experience. Like I went to a high school, a diverse high school. We had, you know, we're in the middle of a really diverse area. Charles is familiar. Like Oak park is closer. Forest is, is right next to us. Elmo park. Um, you know, the suburbs surrounding my high school lend it to a lot of diversity. So we, you know, how you treat, how you treat, People is how you're judged as a person, right? So in our high school, we're around a bunch of different people and you treat them all the same. Like everybody's the same. You don't know any different until you're, unless you're told something different. So when you're in a community that may be predominantly white or predominantly- Nobody's born racist. That's something you have to be taught. So you only know, and and you, uh, you know, I I personally like to judge people like- I make my own judgments on people. Like I'll have friends that'll introduce me to someone and I might have some backstory from them. Like, Oh, this is, this is Jimmy. So-and-so give me a little, give me a little backstory about their experience, but their experience isn't relevant to me. Like, Hey, I know Jimmy, like he's a good dude. This is, you know, he's been good to me. He's, you know, I don't know him like you know him and I'm going to treat him how he's treated me. Like he's going to treat me like trash. That's the perception I'm going to have of him. And I think it's like you said, individually, uh, as people listen, like that was a good point that you made and, I, and from other people I've talked to, you know, other race, religion, creed, it's just listen, like we have a conversation, treat somebody how you want to be treated. It's, as you see a lot of, you know, a lot, I have a lot of kids and I talk to our high school kids uh, about what's going on. And I said, look, you guys live in a different world. I said, everything you, you do is documented. Everything you do, everything you say, assume it's documented. Everything you do, you guys post on social media, I'm like, be, you know, treat people how you want, how you yourself want to be treated. You're not in a bubble. You don't live in a bubble anymore. Like you guys live, you have the, uh, my phone right here. Like this is the world at your fingertips. So you say something ignorant or you have, you have a thought that you could assume if you're going to offend one person, you're going to offend everybody. And if you need to, you need to listen, you know, listen twice as much as you speak. And that's a good point for, you know, as, as you're talking to people in the world about what's happening and everything that's happening is like, it's a whirlwind of uh, this happened, I think May 27th in Minneapolis, I forget the exact date, but about two weeks ago. And the amount of like what's happened in the world in those two weeks is enough for a lifetime of, uh, or it's enough to write a whole history book in these past two weeks. 
Like, listen to what's going on. Listen to what these people are saying. Uh, you know, there's protesters all around. Like, there's we're listening to you know Charles. You and I were we're friends off of uh, you know you just met Dan, but we've been friends prior to this. Like, I'm not going to just seek you out to give you my opinion. Like, I'm going to listen to what you have to say. I'm going to listen to all what my friends have to say. Like, you need to listen to what's happening. And there's a lot of stuff back to kind of the media. There's a lot of things that are being said, you know, media is reporting on it and it's becoming a narrative that's div divisive as opposed they, to. They literally, they pounce on negativity and I absolutely hate it. And the problem is you made a point earlier, Bobby, that people don't seek information. That's the biggest problem with politics, religion and, and life. People only, they use like the quick fix answer. So they hear something right away and they're like, okay, that's gospel. I'm looking at that uh, Black Lives Matter protest, uh, cop kills, you know, another young black. Okay. Now if I look at that and understand it, don't get me wrong. Like there's a lot of bad cops. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot of bad black people. There's a lot of bad everybody. There's, it's not just a black, again, and white thing. It's a, it's a thing where it's everybody, right? I hate how everything is grouped. Um, but the, the problem that people have is that black people are just fighting to have equal say. Um, and, I, and, and that's what I don't think people get. Like, we're not asking for anything that's on. We're asking literally just for equality. Because if that yeah. was a white person, that would have never happened. And we all know that. It's a fact. You can't deny that. Eight minutes, 46 seconds, he had his damn foot on the, his, his damn knee on the guy's. He couldn't breathe. Like, he's begging for his life in public. It, I mean, there's people recording it. There's five, four other cops sitting there watching it happen. Like, that's murder, man. Like, in, in broad daylight. And that that's that's sad. You know, you go back to all the stories, like Emmett Till, let's say, stories mm -hmm. like that. If you're not aware of that story, please Google it, okay? Um, and Google what actually happened many years later uh, about the result of that and how that woman made that up. So there's so many stories about this happening to, to black people, um, and there's nothing being done about it. I feel like people would it's not right, but if these cops are actually being held accountable for what they're doing, like the cop that killed the kid in Chicago, he got off because of the damn coronavirus. People aren't even talking about that. Like these cops are not being held accountable. They're, they're avoiding it because they stand for the law and they're taking their law privileges too far. And you can't do that. And that's not right. It doesn't matter if the cops white, black, Mexican, Asian, like it comes down to just treating people with a certain like respect and just giving people the same respect. I shouldn't be treated any differently than you are, Bobby, when you get pulled over by the cops. But right. then, unfortunately, the situation is I am. And a lot of that also is based on the media, the perception of black people in the media. They're the rappers, athletes, drug dealers, or, or killers. I'm not any of those, right? I was an athlete, okay? But more than that, I'm a person, right? Uh, amongst everything else. And I just, uh, people are just asking for equality and just asking for justice in these things. It's gonna happen again. Now, my thing is, how will people respond to it? Like, and I'm not talking about people protesting. I'm talking about law enforcement. They need to be stricter on cops. And that's just something that has to get done. I don't think it's right. You can kill somebody like that in broad daylight over $20, right? This guy lost his life over what you thought was something that was a bigger deal. Like 20, like even if it was a counterfeit $20 bill, like, is that worth his life? Like, and people talk about his history. I hate that stuff. And I'm starting to get fired up, but like, I hate yeah, it. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah, I, get fired I stole up. a candy. I stole a candy bar when I was six years old. I don't mean that doesn't deserve me to lose my life. Like, I'm sorry that there's no correlation there. Like that's what kind, not what kind of candy bar. 
Okay. Yeah. Three Musketeers. It, it's oh, not. Three Musketeers. It's, it's the worst Come on, one, man. No, but like that, that's not worth me losing my life, whether it be in the moment when I stole the candy bar or whether it be 10 years later when there's a right. cop there with his, with his, uh, his knee on my neck. It's, it's not, you can't equivalent that. That's not, that's not right. And we need to yeah. change that. And the transparency for sure. Like I, I just read, I think yesterday that on the Brianna Taylor case, which they just opened oh. up a door and shot that shot a random woman to death. Well, that was and, a, well, and that's they, a no knock, no knock warrant, right? That was, yeah. And I guess yeah. her, her boy, no her boyfriend warrants. or whoever was there with her thought it was just like someone busting in to rob them. And I guess yeah. shot one of the cops and, but they said like they got the, a, co- a, co- a copy of the report, the incident report. And it was like basically blank. The cops just like, didn't fill anything out and just like covered it up like yeah, they do it, it's a that's huge the problem. yeah that, that's that's what's ridiculous about it yeah when that's you got, the problem yeah definitely i mean and to this specific incident in minneapolis so you have you have the you know protesters rioters like a mob mentality they want to see justice right you want to see you want to see justice and the and the original officer um was taken in and the three other officers are now taken in and and charges on them but then you like you said, you want to dig a little deeper. So people, people want like murder one charge. They want, they want high charge. They want this guy to go away for life. And it's like, you have to like, take a step back. You like look into the details of what some of these charges are. If you charge him high, like murder yes. one, he might he, get off. Like, yes, yeah, it's, to, not you, 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 it's not a murder one. It's not a murder one, but, but it's not, a, it's, it might not even be a murder two based on like the, now it's all starting to come out that maybe they knew each other for years prior. They used to work together. Like there's I don't a lot believe of weird, any of that shit. There's a lot of weird details coming out about these two, like their backgrounds that how they or like overlapped each other, like knowing like how they not for the amount of, they knew the amount they, of like, like they knew each other before this happened. So it's not like he had, it's not like he's going to this arrest, you know, he's going to this, uh, gets called in as backup, sees this guy and has no idea who he is. Like there's a good chance maybe he knew who he was, but the point is like, there's, you know, people want to see justice and they want to see like the highest degree of justice based on their like for their everybody emotional reaction. But it's OK. Let's take a step back. Like if you want justice, let's make sure that there can be justice, because if you do overcharge him, he's he might get off. And at that but point, Bobby, but listen, but listen to what you're saying. That alone making that point is absolutely ridiculous. The fact that that's even something that he fucked. He killed the guy like bottom no, line. No, right. Like, right. No, and so my point, though, is like. If I killed you, okay, th- it doesn't matter what the charge is and how they do it. I killed you. I need to go away. If I killed yes, you not I defending agree. myself, like if I killed you protecting my family, <clears throat> that's a completely different thing. But if I killed right. you because you looked at me a certain way or because I thought you looked at my wife, let's say I thought you looked at my wife and I thought you looked like somebody she used to date and I came up to you, your back was turned and I killed you. I don't give a damn what you charge. The fact that we're even talking about that, the level of it is absolutely ridiculous. Right. Bottom line I agree is, with you. He killed somebody like in broad daylight that it was unjust and he needs to get the maximum pen- penalty for that. Because if I did it to you, I would get that. There would be no talk. There would be no controversy about what's the charge going to be. That's completely irrelevant, right? Let, like, let's stick to what actually happened. Because if you take that cop uniform off of him, he's a person just like us, right? And if I had to did that to you, uh, it would be different. And because he, and unfortunately, Trayvon Martin, let's talk about that. This guy walked down the block and followed this guy, got in a fight with him and shot him. And he was a regular person. So if regular people can do it and get away with it, he, the guy with George Zimmerman was signing Skittle packages because that's what Trayvon Martin had on him when he died and he killed him. 
George Zimmerman is going around gloating about this. And he's a regular person. So if regular people are allowed to go around and, and create anarchy like this and it be okay and acceptable, of course cops are going to get away with it. And that is the problem. That's what everybody really needs to understand. It, the action, if, if people were reprimanded for what their actions were and it was equal, the reaction wouldn't be so crazy to what it is now. If people were all held to the same standards, it's just not right. It's not fair. Like we're bottom line. He killed him. He murdered him. Bottom line. No, definitely. I don't don't misconstrue what I'm saying. I'm not saying he should get a lesser charge. I'm just, but the way the system is set up, like people, that's my point though, the system, the way it's set up, that's that's the problem. You're right. No, you're hundred percent right. I agree with you. My, but I'm saying there's the, like the public outrage is like, they want more and more and more. It's like, I, I, I see where you're coming from. Like you want more, but currently how as met as right or wrong, how it's set up, you don't want to, you don't want to get pushed to the point where he ends up getting off. Like you don't want to push it to the point I where I think all Bobby's saying get. is that the DA, they have to choose the right charge. Because if they like, try to you charge need, like, him, make with, sure that he goes away for for what yeah, he did. That's all. I think no, I it, you know, that's the yeah. The system totally. I understand what you're saying. Like the system should be yeah. You kill somebody, you go away. Like the, what's wrong is wrong. What's right is right. But it like how the system is broken currently. You don't you don't want to leave it open a chance that he may get off on a technicality. Uh, or sentence be less. No, a right. thousand percent. Our, no, our listen. Wording. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, no, we're on the same page. I'm just, I just, no, I'm just yeah, we like are. And, and, and what yeah. you were saying was right. And I think, so my point was, and your point, both of our points were right. But I think my point was, is that the fact that we even have to have that discussion about how the system is so it's messed wrong. up. Right. And, yeah. and your point was, you were saying the same thing. The system is messed up. So let's make sure, and let's make sure people understand that. Like he and I weren't disagreeing and we both were right and saying the same thing. I was more or less talking about the way the system is just set up for failure uh, for people that are minorities. And it's a fact and we see it repeatedly. And he was saying the same thing. Make sure that it's charged in a way where he's getting the full maximum punishment. So that's what Bobby was saying. So please get that. He's not defending it. He's not saying that. No, no, I don't think, I don't think anybody's taking it that way. Like I, I wasn't taking it as you were attacking me. I'm just, I want to clarify, like there's, you want, if you want the, you want this guy to get the, his due punishment, like mm-hmm. make sure that, that you don't overstep in, into some legality, you know. Uh, well, I think you're saying like if the mob's calling, if everyone's calling for, you know, first degree murder and we give in to all these, you know, like, yeah, let's charge them. And then you can't convict him of first degree, then he gets nothing. And that's what yes. we don't want. Right. You don't and want to see what's going Right. Right. Yes. Because yeah. a lot of people, I think a lot of people in general, like I wouldn't have if I, when I was a kid, what's the difference between first degree, second degree, third degree murder? That's you don't great really point. know. First degree is like, Man, I really don't like Bobby. I'm going to go murder him. It's premeditated. There's and second degree is, you know, it's like a crime of passion. Like you're in the moment. You're in a bar fight and you kill a guy. And third degree, I don't even know what that is. It's like a weird. It's called I like think depraved it's, heart I think or it's something not strange. Pre, it, it's they like said not it's really weird. Yeah, it's a and then so there's like, not, and there's like manslaughter charges. Accessory to murder as well, where yeah, you actually don't need to pull the trigger to be convicted of something. But if you're in that environment and you're basically like hey shoot this guy and he does it you might as well have pulled the trigger too so well, it's like just different three, like yeah. the three cops that are there like they're not yes. they're not they didn't kill him but they didn't do anything to prevent what happened accessories right so they like they're going to get charged and people want those guys to get charged and they're clamoring for it and and it's the protesting for it but okay like let's make sure that yeah they're held accountable for what they didn't do 
but they can't be held accountable if you overcharge them. Like if you charge them for murder one, like they're not going to get convicted. Yeah, they're going to be. They're, they're going to end free. up walking, yeah. which yep. isn't which isn't right. So let's let's like be smart about yeah. what you're you know what you're what you're asking for from you know from yeah. DA and the thing I think that's going to be really good that comes from this is the transparency because he had like 15 complaints against him that officer. And there's a lot yes. of them. I think the Atlanta officer that really beat someone up had like a crazy amount of complaints about use of excessive use of force, and he still. Like how many corporate in corporate America, how many times could you have 15 complaints against you from like in HR your job. and still have wow. your job? Like that's what the <laughs> Me Too movement was about, right? Yes. The Me Too movement cleared out a lot of rich white dudes who were just being the worst to women in the workplace and getting away with it for a long time. Just huge track records. And it's the same thing here. There's again, most cops are good people, but there's some cops who have been they have a, they have a, a huge track record of misconduct yes. and they're still yeah. happily employed. Yes, and, and, and they're allowed to change. get away that's with for it. Sure gonna, and that's for sure going to change now. It seems yes. like they're starting to make these, like New York just, I think, passed something the other day that or they're going to be very close to having a very transparent, like, overall database for complaints about and no, officer no conduct. Choke. So you're not going to be able to hide. You're not going to be able to hide Like, no more chokeholds. Somebody's yep. no more chokeholds. Like Minnesota that, did yeah. that. Like, different, you know, whatever their tactics, whatever they're taught, like, how yeah, to Chokeholds are scary. Somebody. You can accidentally kill a person. Like it, well, it's out, happened a lot. You don't, yeah, you don't know if they're going to come back. Yeah, you put them out. You don't know if they're going to wake back up. Yeah, I just if somebody's telling you I can't breathe, I just don't understand why you would continue to do that. Humans I need to breathe. It's like like every day I wake up and I try to eat. I try to breathe. Um, there's some other core things that I do, but yeah. Like you got. I mean, sorry, I was, just, I was making a joke. I didn't mean it, but yeah. No, it's I mean, okay. Yeah, I mean, chokeholds are crazy. Like I remember. I think I saw, watched like a YouTube video or something a while ago about like how you do a chokehold. But then the guy was like, yeah, you got to be real careful because sometimes they just like don't come back. Like they just don't wake well, up. Somebody, I saw somebody later. tell like John Cena, one of the wrestlers, some like a prominent wrestler talked about, he's like, there is like, those are like legitimately dangerous. Like we don't do them how you see them on TV where it's like, that's not, <laughs> it's not a, it's not something you take lightly when you've got your, your arm around somebody's neck and, or your knee on the back of somebody's neck or whatever. And that's, that's the thing too, is like you're watching it and you're hearing the nine minutes is a long time. Like that is a extremely long time to do any, literally anything, let alone press down on somebody on the, you know, on the concrete. I don't think, and I, I think it's important to say like, I don't think anybody agrees with what this cop did or any, you know, that's, that's no. getting convoluted in the, in the discussion. It's like, look, yep. nobody's defending this guy at all. Yep. It's what's, it's what do we, what do you need to do? So it doesn't happen. Yes. And, that's, and listen, listen yes. to what people are saying. Like, listen to the experiences of, you know, Charles Bolden or, or somebody who's, who's talking like they're not being combative. They're not saying like your life doesn't matter or, or that there's not racism in other parts of the world or they're just giving you experiences. And that's currently the topic, right? That's a, like the, the African-American experience in the U S is the current top of the, you know, top of the discussion. So we're listening about it. They're not, they're not dismissing other topics. Like there are other people that get discriminated against. We get it. Like everybody understands well, and, that and other the, people uh, have died. Like it's not, it's not to dismiss that. It's just, this is what's top of mind. L listen to what other people are saying. You don't need to just throw out, you know, your opinion without hearing what's, you know, where they're coming from. Like pe people want to be heard, like let them be heard. Well, and with the other cops not not doing anything about it, which is a problem, that's been a, like a systemic problem in other professions for a long time. And there's yep. two big examples. One is, I, th I can't remember exactly which culture. I want to say it was the Japanese airliners, but there was a, uh, 
in for these pilots, there was a culture of the pilot knows everything. He knows all. And you never as like a, as a, what's the, what's the co-pilot? There's the co-pilot. And then there's like this, the first mate on a, on a commercial airliner or whatever. But there was for a long time, a culture that if you're the co-pilot or the, or the first mate or whatever, you didn't speak up against the pilot if he was making a bad decision. And so planes would literally crash and you'd have a co-pilot who's like, the pilot should really do this. He's making a mistake. And he wouldn't say anything because there was just like, it's such a respect culture for, you know, the, the guy in charge. And finally, they're like, why are so many planes crashing? Like, this is ridiculous. I think this was like in the 70s or something. Mm. And they had to really work hard as a culture to say, you need to speak up and pilots need to allow, like, this isn't, this isn't a, like, this isn't a respect thing. If you, you're not expected to be perfect as a pilot and you need to let your second command help you make these decisions. And then when they started speaking up, now there were two people making good decisions for the safety of the plane and the accident records drastically improved and the other one is in hospitals there are still there's still a culture where doctors know all and nurses often have their um opinions dismissed like a nurse could see a doctor administer the wrong drug or too much of the wrong or too much of a drug and they don't say anything or they say something the doctor's like i'm the doctor and then people die that way right and so like there's been a shift in hospitals to like they have a checklist system and they have an accountability system where it's like no Nurses, if you need to tackle a doctor essentially because they're not listening to you and they're given the wrong medicine or something, or you know that they just like, because we're all people, you can't possibly, especially in a chaotic word like a hospital, like an <laughs> ER, you could, you, of course, you could like give someone the wrong medication. You could look at a chart, see the wrong thing, and just like accidentally someone dies. And they've been working hard to fix that too. And, uh, and it seems like that's hopefully something that's going to happen in the police force too, because there's no good those reason are, to watch. Those are good watch. points. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's, a, it's a cultural thing. Listen, like you don't want to speak yeah. out against your buddies or and I, I, you, you yeah, think it'll be okay. It's a frat. Yeah. It's like a, yeah. yeah. Well, it's not always from a place of being malicious. Like maybe those cops were like, they didn't expect him to George Floyd to die. You know, I don't know and how that's not to say after, it's right. Yeah, after four right. minutes would have been enough for me to be like, Hey dude, like there's people for out sure. here. Like there's people recording this, like, let alone, like if the guy, like, obviously if you do that long enough, he's going to die. But like, where's the common sense come in where you're like uh you realize that everybody's watching this and you know this is something where yeah. this can get out of hand like where's the common sense but common sense is not common but that that's yeah. as a cop that's how i'm looking at it like i know there's already heat on me people are already putting this attention on me same thing with a black man they go through the same experiences they're judged and all this but um how do you not just be like okay dude that's probably enough yeah, well, for sure. Yeah, that's like I the mean, tasing. There was that other man that died yeah. on, like, as they were filming that that TV show. They were tasing him and tasing him and tasing him. And I've heard tasing is incredibly painful and it like seizes your whole body up. Yeah, you go and into he's seizure. like telling him, I can't. He's like, I have a heart thing. I have a heart thing. And like, all right, so that's probably you probably given him enough. Like he's on the ground. Well, and you, I mean, there's you could Crazy. we could talk about this all day. Obviously, but there's four guys and there's one one you know, suspect, whatever, whatever he was, whatever he's considered, whatever uh, George Floyd is considered, I don't know, suspect or whatever he was being withheld, you know, held for, there's four of you. Like you're four trained police officers against one unarmed guy. Like, okay. Handcuffed. Yeah. Well, he did. And then there's a story like he maybe was in the, he was in the, in the back of the squad and then he's, then they take him out and then this happens. Like, what's happening there? Like what, where was the disconnect of just subduing him and, you know, giving it, 
giving him his rights, like reading his rights and then bring him in for whatever the charge is going to be. Like what, where did the escalation happen where now people are videotaping this guy on the ground yelling, screaming, and there's people just standing around not doing anything. What happened there? Like why, why did, why is that such a, like, why did it get to that point? What happens for it to get to that point? It's not like, that's yeah. clearly not right. If you're sitting there and you're standing there, like that's clearly something is wrong here. Like that's this- ego and knowing in the back of your head, you have an opportunity to get away with it. Now, if these situations happen and there's harsher penalties on cops where you can actually go to prison for 30 years and you actually stay in there for 30 years, now people are going to think differently about how they do yeah. things and how they they're control their actions. caution. Yeah. And, and, and I think there also needs to be more discussion between the community and the police. And they need to just sit their asses down and have those town halls and those uncomfortable conversations and explain. Let the people vent their frustration. Sit there and like, they're doing it like, listen, and then, hey, say in return, our, you know, whatever, like just express like your intent as a police officer and what you're trying to do for the community. Because people don't understand that. And it's misconstrued and it's taken the wrong way because they have all the power in the situation. So it needs to be more discussions within communities too, man, not just on a broader scale. And I think now that's happening. Well, it maybe not that directly, but with the people and the cops, but I think just the conversation happening on a bigger scale is it's happening now. And it's important. I'm actually doing a, um, uh, a meeting myself for the entire athletic department and the softball team and the, the parents and coaches on Monday night. Um, and I'm talking about those things. So And a lot of those people are from Minnesota, Wisconsin, from rural areas where they don't have experience to what it is, you know, and they don't have knowledge of what it is to talk to somebody that's a minority. You only know what you know uh, and what you don't know, which I think sometimes is an excuse because we have the most access to information and we're the dumbest we've ever been as a country. We're idiots and we have so much, we can find out anything. Um, And that's sad, but it's, it's the reality of it. But no, it's important to just keep this going, man. And I just, I hope people just, just listen. <laughs> that's, a, it's that's, that's, a great, that's a great quote. Cause you sound like me like, yeah, there's so much information yet. How, we're all like collectively pretty dumb. Like you're collectively, you're just, you're clueless to what's happening around you. Like you just, you're in your bubble. You're staring at your phone. Like you walk, people walk around like this. Oblivious oh, to everybody people, else around I've them. seen people run into stuff, drive. Like I've been at red lights and like people, and they run into stuff. Like they're oblivious to what's happening around them. It's like, you have all this information, but you don't, you're not present in what's happening around you. Like you're not present at the dinner table because everybody's on their phone while they're eating. You're not present when you're in the company of other people. Cause you're not talking. You're just, you're look, you're watching TV. You're looking at, you're looking at Facebook. You're, you're doing everything, but being in a moment and l- like learning from other people, being in the situation to, to, to talk, to talk about things like how we're doing now or, when you're with people, how you're going to do on Monday, you just, nobody's in the moment. You're just, you're, you're blinded by, by all the distraction around you. Yeah. Well, Charles, I mean, this is a great conversation. We really appreciate your candor and just coming on. And um, I think this is really helpful for, I mean, like everyone in the baseball world and the, uh, there's just a lot of stuff here for parents to chew on in general, not just about the racial issues, but also just about college baseball and what they're looking for. And um, I mean, it's, it's really interesting what you're doing with your program. How can you, how can people follow up with you on the web if they're interested uh, you, in learning more about you and your program? I mean, where would you like to direct people? 
Twitter, uh, Coach Bolden underscore uh, UWEC Baseball on Twitter. Um, I think that's the most open, most accessible thing where, you know, and, and me as being a person, I know Bobby and, and you as well, Dan, uh, we have to change with the times. You know, it's not even so much a Facebook thing. Everything is Twitter and everything is, you mm-hmm. know, stuff like that. But, you know, and, and that'll be a good way to understand me more as a coach. You'll see other actually other players on there that comment about, you know, the impact that I've helped make in their career. And you'll see all the players that we have committed to the program and you'll have a better understanding for me as a person and a family man and, and things like that. So I would say Twitter. Okay. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah. I mean, we really appreciate it. It was great to meet you. And I think it's, like you said, it's, it's hard having these conversations because I'm sure Bobby feels the same. Like even as we're talking here, I don't want to say the wrong thing and come off as insensitive. It's like a little scary and we deserve to feel that way because yes. we're all complicit and that's okay. But I appreciate you. I appreciate you sharing your experience and, and being so open about it. Absolutely. And I, I don't think, I don't think it's necessarily the wrong thing to even say, because even if you think that way, uh, and if you can explain what your intentions are, whether it be like, if you just don't know, I think it's important to say that and have somebody tell you like, Hey, well maybe think about it this way. Or if you're able to be like, Hey, well, these are my intentions with what I meant. I think it's yeah. important to also express that too. So don't, I feel like people need to don't stop trying to be so like say it and just understand, like be prepared for a conversation um, and accept it, like, you know, whether what your intentions mm-hmm. are, because I think there's a lot of learning moments out of that. I think that's the problem when people don't share things. Yeah, absolutely. Bobby, you want to send us off? Yeah, Charles, thanks again. This is awesome. Uh, join us Tuesday. We have Adam Polon from the Orioles Minor League. He's a broadcaster for the for an Orioles affiliate. And we're going to talk some more baseball. We can get in some – we have another Baltimore guy, so I'll be a little outnumbered. I'm pretty <laughs> you, love, you, you love, love the Orioles. Love, love Baltimore, guys. But uh, – Thanks for tuning in. We'll see everybody on Tuesday.